0: You've tuned in to a special edition of the Roundtable podcast, 20 Minutes with Delilah Dawson. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Dave Robison.
1: And I'm Starla Hutchton.
0: And you've tuned in to a special edition of the Roundtable podcast, 20 Minutes With.
1: 20 Minutes With is the chance for us to sit down with some amazing authors and discuss their craft so we can improve our own. Indeed.
0: And and we definitely have that covered today. Uh, uh, but before we launch into that specific bit of fabulosity, uh, Starla, first of all, thank you so much for, for taking the co-pilot's chair with me for this episode. I appreciate it.
1: Oh, that's no problem. I'm totally excited. This is awesome. Uh, this is, <laughs> I'm all excited about the guests.
0: So. <laughs> I know, right? It's fabulous. And, and dear friends, uh, for those of you who have been living under a rock and maybe don't know who Starla Hushton is, Starla Hushton is, some, is, is probably very soon going to be a guest host On the round table. She is the author of the Maven series, the Evolution Angel series, the Dreamer's Thread, uh, uh, numerous literary wonder works, all of which are getting a lot of play these days, Starla, and that's frickin' awesome.
1: (laughs) I don't know if that's more because I uh, don't shut up about them or because I don't talk about them, but (laughs) yeah. So uh, yeah, the the Endure series, uh, three books, the Evolution series is three books, and that series is complete,
0: so... Awesome. Yeah. And, I'm and just
1: excited people are reading them and enjoying them.
0: I've I've heard some amazing comments and a lot of very, very positive feedback. People just devouring the Evolution Angel series. So
1: well, yeah, superheroes are hot right now, man. Yeah, so baby. You tap the
0: nicely done. <laughs> well, you know, when you think about it, our guest host is for this episode is kind of a superhero. Starla, let me introduce you to, to this, <laughs> this <is> a remarkable <laughs> person. Um when when I start researching a guest host, I always start with their website and and amid the the delightful details strewn upon our guest host's about page uh, is this lengthy and very eclectic list of all the things she's into including things like eating weird animals and narwhals and <laughs> drinks made with elderberry and i i was i was perusing the list and i missed the comma between reading and tacos <laughs> And, and my mind just froze trying to comprehend what it meant to read tacos. What's that for reading
2: tea leaves? I was, I was gonna gonna, say. Yes, is, is, is
0: this some new form of divination? Or or is there some secret taco canon of literature that I've been oblivious to all of my life? So eventually I figured it out. Uh, but in that moment... I began to suspect that I was on the brink of a very deep and twisty rabbit hole, fringed with almond cream frosting and lots of sprinkles. And dear friends, I'm here to tell you, I was right. Now, as a child in Roswell, Georgia, our guest host was not living exactly an idyllic life. She was confronted by issues and challenges that no child should ever have to be confronted with. But... She endured, and like most children, uh, stories fascinated her. And at the age of six, she took up the pen and drafted an epic saga titled The Jungle and Its Life, a taut but dreadfully punctuated tale that ends with the intrepid explorer getting bitten by a cobra and dying, A, a tragedy of jungle proportions. (laughs) <laughs> it was also around this time that she borrowed, in all caps, borrowed a copy of Watership Down from the local library and somehow <laughs> neglected to return it. And oh, exactly did you returned it. Oh, yeah, sure you did. I, I, I have it on good authority that, that, that you are still haunted by dreams of Roswell Library administrators haunting you, hunting you down for the $400,000 late fee for that book but you did turn it back in
2: It's her daughter on Facebook and she hasn't mentioned it. So I think I'm safe.
0: <laughs> well, all right. Fair enough. Then fair enough. Good. At least we dodged that bullet. Uh, uh, now, as far as dreams go, uh, uh, make no mistake. Our guest host has a very active dreaming life uh, for a while. Uh, she was under the thrall of a recurring dream where she was being chased around a baseball diamond by Abraham Lincoln, Uh, And dreams will actually factor into her narrative later. But to continue, at 11, she started feasting on the works of Stephen King, whose influence would continue to work its mojo upon her. His book on writing is a tattered relic on her bookshelves. In high school, she was a straight-A nerd with all the trauma and drama that came with that unenviable status. However... Her grades earned her a seat in the 11th grade AP English class taught by Karen Lanning. And our guest host credits her as the person who truly taught her how to write. It would be a while before she actually applied those literary talents, however. She held down some strange jobs. She played Jasmine and Pocahontas at parties for an entertainment company during high school. And has well, that worked felt
2: like there was an escort and I, I was for children.
0: Yes, 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 absolutely for children. Okay. Uh, yes, I let me let me make that very very clear. This <laughs> see, this is for children's party at parties, children's parties. I should have put the word children's parties for an <laughs> entertainment company. Yes, let's be very clear about that. She was not, yeah. She was a go-go dancer. <laughs> she was she was a Jasmine go-go dancer. Yes, uh, uh, and and she was also working as a corpse for a haunted house for a while. Uh, And and as a side note, for those of you seeking a career in the haunted house biz, apparently staging an impromptu murder-slash-cannibalism scene on your way back from the snack bar is the key to upward mobility. Uh, She went on to college, scoring a sweet degree in studio art. Now, she claims that degree is absolutely useless. And yet... She also claims to have once seen a painting of a goat in Picasso's studio in Antibes, France, that changed her life. Art is a powerful thing, friends, and works its magic in strange and subtle ways.
2: I think you mean goats are a powerful thing. Like, it wasn't the art, it was, it was the
0: goat. It was the, well, okay, the goat, absolutely, but, I mean, it was... It was powerful
2: things. P-
0: goats are powerful things, and... and <laughs> There's there's resonance to that We'll talk about that later But uh, uh, Now it was around this time A little bit later Around the age of 26 uh, uh, That our guest host Was diagnosed with Hashimoto's thyroiditis A chronic thyroid condition She continues to manage to this day And causes her great stress When she ponders the zombie apocalypse uh, And dear friends Pity the poor shambling undead That stands between her And her medication uh, That sucker's going down Uh, When do we get to the writing, you ask? Well, just chill. Our guest host was something of a late bloomer. Uh, She always thought writers were cold to their craft, like nuns or doctors. It took the utter sleepless exhaustion of having her second child to bring about the epiphany that shattered self-doubt and drove her to the keyboard. And there she wrote the novel called Fairy Tale. Oh, God help us. Never heard of it, have you? Nope. That's because she trunked it as an irrevocably flawed piece of fiction. And, you know, I mentioned that to affirm the fact that I'm sure our guest host would agree that sometimes you got to write a lot of frogs before the prince rolls up on your pages. So she put her head down. She did all the things writers do, writing, submitting, and looking for an agent. It took a hell of a long time. But a fortune cookie and a four-leaf clover later, she eventually connected with Kate McKean of the Howard Moreham Literary Agency. It was a perfect match, and they both got down to work. Then our guest host has a dream of waking up naked on a rock, being leered at by a lascivious Lord Darcy. Now, this dream would lead to the creation of the now iconic character, Criminy Stain, the primary male character in the series that would become her first sale, the Blood series, spelled B-L-U-D, which includes Wicked As They Come, Wicked As She Wants, and Wicked After Midnight, and three novellas. And in doing so, she created her own genre, Carney Punk, which is <laughs> just badass, uh, and and I'm telling you, she went to great lengths to back up the whole Carney Punk vibe and and really immerse herself in that carnival world of her books, uh, including going to Elizabeth Streb's Extreme Action Company in New York City to have a true trapeze experience. Not that kind of experience. She saves that for her books. Uh, But she's also taken circus classes in static trapeze, Spanish web, aerial silks, acrobatics juggling, and tightrope. Now, this steampunk-esque vibe of the Blood series was doubtless a factor in her story contribution to the Ministry Protocol, thrilling tales of the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences fostered by Philippa Ballantyne and T. Morris. Now, you may who have, are awesome. Who are awesome. They are utterly fabulous. Uh, uh, icons of the potosphere and literary spheres as well. Uh, now, there's there's you may have picked up a vibe. There are a lot of sex scenes in the Blood series, which wasn't easy for a shy southern girl to wrap her head around. Uh, but after three books and as many novellas, she's apparently got the hang of it because she's even self-published a book called Geek Rotica. Look that one up on Amazon, dear friends. She has soaps and scents modeled after her characters from Villainous Soaps at Villainous.net. She adores cupcakes, especially red velvet with mounds of almond buttercream and lots of sprinkles and chocolate caramel sea salt cupcakes. She can find four-leaf clovers on demand. She has synesthesia of the graphene color variety, where colors and feelings are associated with numbers and letters, which, incidentally, she shares with Vladimir Nabokov, Iksak Perlman, and Nikola Tesla. So she's in good company. And she once touched her favorite Monet painting, touched a Monet painting once just so she could share atoms with him. Dear friends, please join me in welcoming to the big chair here at the Roundtable Podcast our guest host for this 20 Minutes with Delilah S. Dawson. Delilah, I I cannot tell you how much I'm looking forward to this 20 Minutes with. Thank you so much for making the time for us.
2: Thanks for having me. And my one Adam
0: Monet. And and you're one atom. No, you got probably got at least five or six just by touching it, right? Now- they
2: they threw me out pretty fast. It was not a <laughs> <long> touch.
0: <laughs> and 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 you were just sitting there. You're just standing there in front of the Monet, and you said, "I've got to touch this."
2: I wasn't quite that well thought out. It was more of a. It was more of. Like that moment on the beach when everyone's head kind of slowly lines up and then they're kissing and you can't quite tell when it started and then they were escorting me out by
0: my arm. So <laughs> no, this is
1: more like the four-year-old impulse than the... <laughs> <Yes>. Yeah!
2: <laughs> like that. that's uh,
0: touch my Monet. like
2: a four-year-old a light socket.
0: See, there's probably only a handful <laughs> of people in the universe that have actually touched the painting itself. I know, that's pretty so that, That's pretty badass.
2: Which so, painting was it? Um, it was... Oh, gosh... It actually, it wasn't a really well-known one because it was in a little atelier in, it wasn't Antibes, it was Nice. It was somewhere around there in the south of France. I'm getting very old. I was 18 then.
0: <laughs> you used to have a memory, yeah.
2: It's really blurry. It was yeah. lovely.
0: Well, let's let's get down to our 20 minutes with, with Delilah S. Dawson. I'm not about to waste a single moment of time more. The clock is set. We'll ignore it and move on. Um, Delilah... One of the, the things that, that fascinated me about exploring your, your background and, and your process is, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, but basically the, the process is that you an idea comes to you, you write it down, you cogitate, obsession ensues, and if it does, the first thing you do is not sit down and outline or sit down and work things up. The next thing you do is you come up with a Spotify playlist.
2: That is true. So uh,
0: and, and I know a lot of writers that writes with music and, and have evolved playlists during the writing process. I, I think you may be the first one who actually uses Spotify as a generative tool for your creative process. Can you, yeah. can you describe how that, wor- how that how does that work for you?
2: Um, it's behavioral conditioning. Basically, I, I put together a playlist of what the book kind of feels like, um, of the tone of the theme. Of uh, maybe snippets I get of what might happen further along the line. Um, I don't really start writing a book or developing a playlist until I know uh, where the story begins, who the main character is, what the instigating factor is, because you know books all start when everything changed.
0: That's right. Um, That's
2: right. The the climax, who the villain is, and the ending. And once I have all that and have kind of the tone and the feel and the genre, I start putting together the playlist. Uh, lots of times with help of Twitter, some of my very best um, playlists have come from me going to Twitter and being like, hey, guys, I need creepy Savannah Dark Swamp Murder Hurricane music. And then somebody <laughs> like uh, my buddy Ken Lowry is like, oh, here's the Gutter Twins. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is the book. <laughs>
0: <laughs> They're the soundtrack. So I put that
2: on my iPod and every time in, I'm in the car, I'm listening to it. Every time I'm working on the story, I'm listening to it. And uh, it gets to be whenever I'm listening to the playlist, I'm, I'm, I fall right back into the world. So um it's definitely a nice way to be able to move between uh, different, different books and, and different worlds without uh, losing your mind.
0: Sure, and, and mental states—going from parent to writer at the snap of a finger. Uh, uh, fire up some music. Anyway. I don't snap fingers.
2: That's, that's oh. <laughs> responsible
0: parenting. I, I clearly am, am treading a line here that I didn't realize I was treading, and and I'll, I'll try and be more careful in my phraseology uh, uh, in the future. Now, now, Delilah, just to, just to riff on this a little bit more, uh, uh, the the fact of your synesthesia uh, uh, and and the fact that 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 sound and and uh, colors and feelings are crosswired somehow within you. Does that, do you think, contribute to that process?
2: Oh, I mean, it's, I think it, it might have something to do with, like, the, the tone and the feel. Like, as I, as I make a playlist and look for music that, uh, it's, it's all about the feel, I guess. I mean, the, the colors don't matter as much. Those are, those are more like, you know, when I'm memorizing a phone number or an address or, or people's names. Um, So, yeah, it does play a part in the names. Like, there are certain names I can't use because I can't stand to look at them.
0: The the, the colors just don't work for you.
2: (laughs) Yeah, the colors definitely don't work for me. And I also seem to get really – when I have a bad experience with someone of a certain name, like, the name, I can't stand it forever after. Uh, So I think that the the synesthesia kind of makes stronger reactions to things than I might otherwise have. I mean, I've never been someone else, so I don't know. But, like, (laughs) if I know people named Jennifer, I can't call them Jennifer because that name bothers me. So I call them all Jen or (laughs) – or Jenny, or something, but I, I have hard time with Jennifer. Cause, right. You know,
1: I I would be curious how that that transfers over to your writing. Like, is, I have a I have a writer friend that a lot of her um, like descriptions of sound um, she she used a term once a goldenrod voice. So I'm I'm just wondering if any of your actual writing uh, brings in that sort of extra element with the synesthesia.
2: I, I definitely does. Um, it happens with with voices. Um, I think in Wicked, as she wants, I said something like, you know, Casper had a, a whiskey gold voice. Mm, um, okay. But okay. It, it's it definitely uh, it crosses the wires, and sometimes I'll use words that aren't normally associated with things, but but seem to work. Um, my agent calls me out on it. If you know, if it makes sense only to me, then she's like, you know. <laughs> well, Jennifer. I think- Cleo- color of vomit you don't need to call her vomitous jennifer
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah that that paints that paints a vivid picture (laughs) and i I can see that contributing to the to to your unique authorial voice uh in your stories i think i think that's fabulous
2: i i have uh been very uh flattered in in reviews and people have Said that they they really felt a sense of place and that the world building was was rich without being you know overbearing or purple prosy because that's definitely what I'm hoping
0: to hit hit the mark awesome
1: well I I found her her how she 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 was talking about the playlist because I actually I, I did that too with the the um, evolution series like not really intentionally but. <laughs> And and yeah, she's absolutely right that the songs that you use while you're you know thinking of this of this book and and getting the feel for it, and I actually have Spotify playlists for this kind of exact reason too because it brings me right back to the story and and I can remember the feel of it and so it was really interesting and cool for me to to hear that you know she does that as well.
0: And- well, now Charlotte, you told me that that uh, you had found. Uh, Delilah's post on writing <laughs> sex scenes.
1: Yes, that was my favorite. I think that was, um, I think I actually followed her on Twitter before that, but uh, when she, she did a guest post on Chuck Wendig's blog, um, it was uh, tips on oh, writing sex scenes.
0: <laughs> and what was it about the post that caught your eye?
1: Uh, just Well, the, just the humor of it and actually imparting really good advice. Uh, it just, it, I've shared that post several times with, with other author friends and everything is like, look at this. If you're having, because a lot of them, it'll be their first time writing, you know, a romance novel or whatever. And they're like, well, I don't even really know how to start. It's like, well, (laughs) here, look at this. She knows all the
0: things. (laughs) Well, Delilah, how do you write a good sex scene? What, what, what's, what is, what are the top three, uh, uh, bullet point? (laughs) Listen to me trying to analyze this shit. Uh, (laughs) how, how do you, how do you write a good sex scene? Delilah?
2: Um, it's, uh, down from 25 humpalicious steps to, to three bullet points. Um, I would say, uh, number one, uh, get drunk.
0: Okay. Uh,
2: Cause you're, especially the first time, usually most people's inhibitions are, uh, very high regarding, um, you know, I, I think when you're, when you're first starting to write, you at first have this feeling that if you're, Characters say or do bad things. People will think that those are the bad things that you believe or would like to do, and that you know people are very worried about being too evil or too strange. And I think the same thing is with sex scenes, is where you start writing and you're like, oh my god, now people will know what I like, what I pay attention to. They will, you know, look at this sex scene and think about me, and and the whole thing is that if, if you do it well enough, they won't think about you at all.
0: <laughs> but um, sure, it's a very so intimate I, sharing. It's a very intimate sharing.
2: I had I had half a half a bottle of wine the first time that I had to write one.
0: Okay. And
2: uh, so I would say have a bottle, have not a whole bottle of wine. She'll be vomiting and that's not good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's sexy.
0: Not sexy. uh, Vomitous Jennifer does not appear in this scene.
2: (laughs) He vomited gently on Jennifer. No.
0: uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry.
2: Straight through from beginning to end. Um, Lots of people will Get really caught up in one little detail or, oh, this I've said hands or wet or thighs too many times and I have to get into the thesaurus and find some great new word that no one's ever used for sex before. But just like most first drafts, just get it all out there as fast as you can, as much as you can, without worrying about how many times you've said something or how many times he's taken off her panties and just get it out and uh, then later on, when you're sober and uh, kind of over yourself, you can clean it up and make sure. I think my first sex scene, I, I mentioned this in the Humbleicious post, like I went to reread it later and like he'd taken off her corset three times. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> I mean, it was, it was, it was, yeah, it, it was like a, an eightsome by the time you read the whole thing and tried to figure out what was happening. But getting it all out there and then uh, cleaning it up, editing it sober and being forgiving of yourself. And uh, using the thesaurus judiciously in that if you use really weird words, it will take people out of the scene. You know, if you're like, his turgid manhood, people are like, oh, God, no. <laughs> Been there, oh, done hate that. the word
1: turgid. <laughs> and, oh, God,
2: please no. But, yeah, people will be like, oh, you know, I've already said hard too many times. So they'll start up with, you know, swollen and engorged. And you're like, eh, it may be true, but that doesn't make it okay.
0: We'll be back with more of our conversation with Delilah Dawson after this brief promotional break.
2: If you're looking for a podcast that caters to both readers and writers, Tale Chasing is the place to be. Readers, get a behind-the-scenes peek at what goes into your favorite author's books, as well as a quickie read into the books you might not have found yet. Writers, come and get tips and tricks from awesome authors and learn how I'm facing the road ahead to publication. If you love books come to tail chasing dot com.
0: Now let's get back to the conversation with Delilah Dawson. <laughs> okay. So there's, 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 so get drunk, get through it fast and then edit it sober. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. what about, um, is, is there, is there a key to, to pacing or, 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 uh, I mean, I would imagine that uh, uh, an intimate scene like that is going to have uh, I, I, it's a beginning, a middle and an end. It's going to have its own story structure. Is that is that a fair assessment?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, pretty much all of us know what that experience is like. That's 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 an experience that most humans share with things like roosters and earthworms. Like we know what sex is. Uh, And if you read a lot, you'll start to get the rhythm in your head. Like in in most romance books, um, like every genre has different ways that it treats sex. You know, in some books, like three pages in, they're jackhammering. And in some books, you know, you get a chaste kiss at page 50 and then the girl turns away. And then then they might mack a little bit on, on page 80, but she regrets it. And then they finally have this beautiful blossoming on page 100. And then, you know, on page 150, when she's awakened, they do it better, but... Uh, I think you have to read a lot in your genre and see what kind of uh, plot arc these sex scenes take in that, and and what works for you. But yeah, I mean, generally, there's some kind of verbal foreplay or some. I mean,
0: it's it's the same as having sex with somebody. it, it there's a rhythm to it. Well, but 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 that's like saying you know. Well, write a book. It's just like living life, and and apparently it's, it's a. It's looking like life? Good lord, <laughs> I wouldn't write.
2: Like life.
0: <laughs> I'm write something well,
2: well, yeah, okay. well, no, but yeah, I mean, it's it's the same as the book where you know there's the the introduction, and then and then this happens, and then there's kissing, and then things escalate, and then there's a, a peak because in most romance books everybody gets their jollies, and then there's the the afterglow, and uh, I think I mentioned it in the uh, you know guide to writing a sex scene, like. Um, For me, a good sex scene is one that that changes the characters. that They they don't come out of it the same at the end because, I mean, in real life, two people do that for the first time. Uh, It changes everything about how they interact, what they do or don't want, if they're shy or embarrassed, what they do afterwards. Uh, It's really telling of who the characters are as people and and where their relationship is heading. Uh, So not something to be taken lightly as as a plot object when you're writing. Make it mean something basically. Yes. Right. And okay. make it can mean something. And if it doesn't mean something, make sure that's on purpose.
0: Right. Right. Well, and it, you know, every word needs to be in service to the story, to the character, to the world, to something. So, and that would yep. hold true for this as well. Yep. Awesome. Very cool. Thank you for that. Um, sure. I, I, I wanted to ask you, uh, one thing I, I neglected in your, in your intro uh, was that you also teach a world building class at lit reactor uh, uh, called uh, how, how to become a god? Be, no, become a god with Delilah S. Dawson, and and I assume that has sure. nothing to do with apotheosis or or ascension. That it's actually the 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 god impulse of all world builders.
2: You have to buy your own sun god robes. Those are not included in the class price.
0: This is important important information. Thank you. I'll, I'll I'll swing out to to gods are us and get mine when I sign up for it. Uh, oh,
2: eBay. <laughs> All
0: the way. eBay, awesome, of course, Godrobes on eBay. Um, I, I'm curious, first of all, uh, uh, how did that gig come about and, and what led you what 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 brought you to that point where you wanted to share that information with folks?
2: Um, I I guess as've as I've gotten uh, as I've developed my writing chops and and gone to more panels and conferences, um I found I well, I mean, I used to teach art classes um, and I enjoy teaching. But uh, it's a very interactive, running around, pointing at things and scribbling on boards teaching. I'm not you know, a very practiced presenter. I, I get really loud and fast when I'm excited. <laughs> but uh, the Crossroads Literary Conference that uh, is held in Macon, Georgia, or was there on hiatus this year. But um, I taught a couple of classes there and just and wrote a bunch of posts for Chuck Wendig and then Lit Reactor approached me and asked if I'd like to write a class. And it was like, yes, that would be very fun. Um I think uh, writers sharing their knowledge with, with other people trying to write is um, – I really believe in pay, paying it forward as a writer. Um, people have been very kind to me and helped me and reached out to me um, and invited me to, to do uh, things that I wouldn't have otherwise found on my own. And I have generally just felt very grateful for uh, the kindness of writers who are uh, at a further point in their career. So helping out people is is really pleasant. Um, and it, it's been really neat, too. That class includes a lot of critique um, with me, you know, commenting on people's world building in constructive ways and helping them think about things in new ways. So, I mean, it it feels really good to help people and it's really been rewarding to see uh, them digest the information and develop their ideas and their, their chapters as the class goes along.
0: Now, I, I used to teach uh, computer classes, and I always found that in, in the teaching of something, you learn a great deal about that thing. Uh, what, what have you learned about world building in teaching this class to others?
2: Uh, it's reinforced for me that some people are really good at uh, giving you a pitch or a hook. And whether or not they can follow up on that and, and finish the work and, and polish it up is completely up in the air. Um, and there are some people who their hook or their pitch raises a lot of questions and seems kind of tenuous. But once they start writing, it is, it is bam, it is right there. Um, so it's, it's been a revelation to me as far as, you know, when you're a writer, people want to throw ideas at you and see what sticks or what hits you. But just the fact that your pitch or your hook doesn't matter until your book is done. Um, if you have an idea that inflames you and obsesses you, uh, that you're passionate about, it doesn't matter if you mention that to your significant other or, or a writing teacher and they go, eh, I don't know. Like, screw that, man. Like, if that's your idea write it,
0: because that's your <laughs> their-
2: it's, it's, it's all in the execution. Um, ideas are great. Ideas are cheap. So it's in if you can do the work and if you can separate yourself enough from the work to be able to edit it with a clear head and to up your game.
0: Awesome. Very cool. Well, and I got to ask, is is uh, is world building a tool or a drug for you?
2: Um, well, when I first started writing, I fell in love with the world's first and my characters weren't quite strong enough. Um, I wasn't committing to them. I was having them kind of, Not cardboard cutouts, but just kind of, I didn't want to make them too this or too unlikable or too stubborn or too pushy or too weak or too damaged. And then I got, and I had a couple of books that went uh, out on submission and didn't sell. And the overwhelming feedback was, God, the world building and the writing are lovely, but these characters just aren't doing it. So I realized that as I started with the world building, I had to develop the characters hand in hand with that. Uh, thinking of the unique ways that the world would challenge the character and that the characters would use the world uh, to develop themselves and how they would be hindered by it and how they would deal with the challenges thrown to them by the world. So now uh, I, I developed those at the same time uh, instead of building this awesome world and then tossing some cards at it.
0: Awesome. Yeah.
2: Did that is that the question at
0: all? I'm sorry? I have no idea. Yes, that was absolutely the question. Really... That was totally the question. <laughs> And 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 it, yeah, and that's a, and that's a critical a core element. I think there's a lot of. I am certainly a, 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 for me, world building is a drug that I need to put down. Uh, uh, and that lesson that you learned is that's a great affirmation that the characters and the world do need to coexist. They need to be in alignment and in service to each other and to the story. So absolutely.
2: Wait, I feel like when you're a kid, like when I was a kid. Um you needed both He-Man and several dudes for He-Man to play with and Castle Grayskull. Like it wasn't fun to just have a bunch of dudes running around in a cardboard box, but if you don't have He-Man and his buddies, Castle Grayskull is is pretty useless.
0: Yeah.
2: I By love that dogs.
1: she used He-Man as an example.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, and I've been kind of hogging the mic here. Starlet, do you have a, a question for Delilah?
1: I'm I'm just listening cuz I'm learning a whole ton just sitting here listening to her. <laughs>
2: A little grade school is necessary. There you go.
0: That's the takeaway for this one, kids.
2: Okay. Um.
1: All right. So I have just I just finished working with an editor for the first time. So I guess my my question to you is when. You survived. Okay. Well, no. I well I did. I wasn't really scared of it. I was actually really excited because I like to see things bleed <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: because it means it's fixable. <laughs> so uh, I'm well, I'm wondering. I you, that is a child. <laughs>
0: Yes, Starla's Childhood would be, it would be a scary thing to unfold, I think.
1: <laughs> was that bad? <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, so my question. Um, the first time that you ever had a manuscript edited, what do you think the biggest thing that you learned was?
2: That if I cried loudly enough, the guy would bring me some more beignets to make me shut up. <laughs> <laughs> ah.
0: Again with the pastries.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I run on sugar. No, um, my, my first edit letter, uh, or my first really big one from my agent was for Wicked As They Come. And it was it was a doozy. And I was sitting outside of one of my favorite cafes, eating beignets, and drinking coffee. And I was like, oh, I get to have a call with my agent. Yay. I didn't realize then that, you know what, this is too big of, this is, what did she say? Like It, it says we need to talk about this. I didn't understand that meant the problem is so huge, I'm not going to bother to write it down. <laughs> uh, so like, hey, my agent's calling me, show me the money. And uh, she's like,
0: you know, we got to
2: kill off two characters, you got to cut a chapter, you got to add 30,000 words. Like it was it's just, it was basically to say the, you know, turn your book inside out, harvest its organs and just build something else. And I was sitting at this cafe and I just, I, I like, Held my stuff together and took my notes and was like, Sure, I understand. And she's like, Okay, well, I'm going to send you the edit notes. And I was like, There's notes! <laughs> um, so, like, you know, I'm like, Okay, I'm all right. And so she's like, Are you okay? And I'm like, Yes,
0: I'm
2: fine. <laughs> we hang up and I just slam my head on the table and I'm crying. And apparently, I was right outside the window of the chef and he walks outside with another plate of beignets, like, sets them down like I'm a rabid raccoon and just like backs away. <laughs>
0: Keep, yeah, so. keep the patron calm. Give her beignets.
2: Oh, yeah. I went back there, you know, like the whole. I went back there for years, and he was always like, "You doing okay?" And I was like, "Yep, <laughs> I haven't gotten a fit letter in a while." But yeah. it was, I was, was an, an A student and growing up, and I was one of those kids. Remember in the '70s when they told our parents to tell us that we were the most special, awesome snowflakes on earth? Mm-hmm. Did you guys get
0: that? Absolutely. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and so I grew up thinking that I was this perfect special snowflake, and so anytime I did something wrong, rather than being like I'm going to apply myself and be tenacious, I was like eh, I'm not good at this. I quit. So I never <laughs> did anything that was <laughs> and that way I was at everything. It was a big pill to swallow as a grown up, um, having to understand that a book, when you spat out a book, it wasn't this this precious golden angel; that it was uh, a big hunk of vomit that needed to be cleaned up and reshaped.
0: Well, and let me ask you about that, Delilah, because because I mean, I, I am very early in my in my writerly pursuits, uh, and and that that editorial process. I, I I host a writing group on on Facebook, the Rotano Rimos, and uh, woo, and uh, and there's goats, and um, ex- thank you, yes, awesome. That's that's uh, you. There are like dozens of Rotanos out in the world cheering right now. That's awesome. Um, but, but the editorial the process of receiving criticism the process of uh, uh, taking it especially like from your editor how when when that comes at you when that came at you for the first time and I, and I know crippling self-doubt is a hallmark of, of all writers everywhere um, but you've you've just written a book a book for God's sakes and you've poured your blood sweat and tears into that thing and someone comes at you and says okay you need to change all of this stuff <sighs> How do you how do you accept that is, is there something about the editor that that makes them that makes you trust them or is there some realization on your part that oh crap they're right and it's okay and you get down to work how, how does that work
2: Well first of all um it's a process like any other it's the stages of grief basically <laughs> okay you accept that and you internalize it and you know what to expect it's not nearly as horrible Um, I know now that when I get an edit letter from my agent or my editor that I will open it, read the whole thing super fast, close it, close the computer, walk away, and keep walking until my shoes wear out. I get very upset. I get very defensive and very, you're wrong. This is wrong. The book is good. The book is awesome. I don't want to do this. And then I just close the email and try to forget about it. And then I start thinking about it thinking about it. And then a couple weeks later, I'm like, God, you know, they're right. And then once I've accepted that, I start to realize how to fix it and get really excited again. But the first couple of times it was, it was very, very rocky. And what got me through it was, um, understanding that the editor had paid me money. And at that point <laughs> it was no longer my book. It was her project. And my job was to make her happy. I'm really good at, uh, I'm a good EXO. I, I don't want to be the person in charge. I want to be the person that uh, kicks ass on their behalf. So once I started to think of it as like this is something that she owns and it's my job to make it awesome, then it was a job instead of a failure and that, that helped a lot. I need forward momentum to succeed and that gives you uh, – when you. I mean it's, it's a great gift when an editor or an agent who has all of this immense knowledge and they're plugged into the market, they've studied, they're talented – when they take the time to, to give you that much feedback, like that's a huge gift because it's not just saying, hey, bitch, fix your book. It's saying like, hey, I care enough about you to take time out of my day and I believe in this project enough to, to give you this gift of how to make it awesome. And, uh, and then the ability like hunkering down and, and coming up with the creative ways to solve their problems is uh, – it's super fun once you put yourself back in the power and uh, instead of thinking this is a thing that is done to me, I'd think this is a blueprint to kicking ass.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's fabulous advice. I, I I will carry that with me, Delilah. Thank you. And and I'm I'm looking at the clock, and and it, it looks hungry. It's sprouted fangs. Uh,
2: is that
0: poor girl? Oh, <laughs> it's it, it, I'm I'm sadly it means that we, we're we're we we're, we're done with our twenty minutes at this point, although I think we could continue for, for another twenty. Delilah, thank you so much for making the time. This this has been uh, uh, insightful and and fraught with writerly goodness and, and I'm very grateful you took the time.
2: Well, oh, thanks for having me. It's been super fun.
0: Oh, yes, indeed it has. Starla, what are, you, what are you taking away from this 20 minutes with? What What jumped out at you and is stuck in your in your creative webs?
1: Well, I just, I, I really like hearing, as a writer, I really like hearing some of the same things that I do reflected in somebody that's, you know, got more success than I do. That means I'm
0: doing something right. That's a great affirmation, <laughs> isn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And for me, it was, I, I really hadn't planned on diving into the how to write a sex scene talk but no, I'm. thank you for taking you us really there.
2: need to read that post i'm,
0: I'm so going to include the link in in the liner <laughs> notes for this because that's that's got to be that's got that's a must read i think
2: it but, got picked up by Cosmo. I was so excited.
0: Oh, damn! <laughs> That's the big time. That's I then then it's definitely going in the line of notes and I'm definitely reading it.
1: But no, oh, my word isn't good enough. or you get it. Oh, it's in Cosmo. That's looking. Well, yeah,
0: <laughs> I might read it if Starla recommends it. But Cosmo? Oh, hell yeah! Because I'm all about the Cosmo. Yeah. <laughs> but it was it was the 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 sex scenes. I think for I, as Delilah observed, you get drunk writing your first one. There there is a, a stigma. There is uh, 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 uh and I think it's. Largely American, uh, uh, a puritanical almost uh, foundation of approaching something like that, and if this, if the books, if the story calls for it, then you got to get down and do it, and and understanding that it is a part of the story, that there is a story to be told through this this experience and this event, and and staying away from turgid and engorged is also helpful advice. So so that 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 stuck with me along with a lot of other awesomeness in there. So so. Yeah, there's 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 goodness to be had for all, uh, dear friends. As always, thank you for tuning in to this episode of Twenty Minutes with uh, and our guest host Delilah S. Dawson. uh, uh Yeah. Well, and you know, we, we, in a week, we're gonna have Delilah back. All, all this frothing awesomeness that we had in the last twenty minutes, we're gonna we're gonna apply that like a laser to a thing that gets shot at by lasers. Uh, uh, I a a thigh hair, but whatever. <laughs> something like that. <laughs> Uh, but a story is what we're going to workshop. And we're going to have Delilah help us out and Starla as well. So, so dear friends, stay tuned. Uh, in that time, if you're feeling like giving us some love, give us a review on iTunes. Uh, uh, we also have a, a forum now. We have a message board. We'll post a section for this particular interview. So if there's topics to be discussed, we can continue the conversation there. Uh, and always, you can find us at www.roundtablepodcast.com. Starlet, they're going to be sitting around for a week. What do you think our listeners should do?
1: Um, read her books. Read my books.
0: Sounds <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like
1: a good idea to me. I
0: think that's an excellent <laughs> idea. That's That's definitely friends. That's the plan for the next week. Starla Hutchton, Delilah S. Dawson, add them to your ebook. put them on your shelf. For myself, I will tell you, you find what you're looking for. So make sure you're looking for the good stuff. You're looking for the gold, because I promise you, dear friends, you will find it. We will see you in a week. Until then, you guys stay cool, be frosty, be awesome, and we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode is copyright 2014 by The Roundtable Podcast, and released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us. Visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at writerspodcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.